Welcome to season two of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, mum, burnout survivor, behavior change scientist, and TEDx speaker. Please take a moment to watch my TEDx talk. The YouTube link is in the show description, and my talk is called How to Stop Burnout Before It Starts. On this podcast, I interview international burnout experts, HR and DEI leaders, and lifestyle coaches to find out how we can create individual, organizational, and cultural change to prevent burnout. When mums thrive, the world benefits. This week, I'm talking about how systems change to prevent burnout starts with asking, what can I do from where I stand? With equity and inclusion researcher, Dr. Kate Murray. As I was editing this episode, I realized that we had recorded this conversation nearly a year ago in the summer of 2021. When I first started this podcast, I reached out to friends and colleagues across the world and had always appreciated Kate's frank responses to questions I had about equity and inclusion. As the podcast proceeded, I had fewer interviews with academics. So I saved this one to intersperse in season two as I like to provide a good mix of perspectives across the season. So if my reference to the Olympics seems out of place, or my mention of just starting last week's guest's book seem odd, then I know you are a regular listener and paying attention. So thank you. My conversation with Kate and the inspiration she's getting from the next generation of students reminded me of connecting with students around my TEDx talk and them saying, They wanted a better world for their mums and themselves as mums. And it reminded me also of the organization Project Matriarch, started by students during the pandemic to support mums with childcare and tutoring. I really appreciated this conversation with Kate and the unique perspective she brings as a psychologist turned systems researcher. I think her advice to start where you are and ask what you can do is really empowering including sharing the opportunities and resources that your privilege brings. Next week's mini episode, based on Kate's advice, will focus on taking back control when the system is letting you down. This is something I know many women are struggling with. You can find Kate's key takeaways on the episode website, drjacquelinecurr.com. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kate as much as I did. I'm Kate Murray, and I am a mother of one. I have a daughter, Lucy, who is nine, and I am currently based in in Brisbane, Australia. I'm an associate professor at the Queensland University of Technology. Great. Thanks so much for being here today, Kate. And if you could start by describing your journey to where you are now in your career. I suppose I've been a bit of a nomad. So my career has meandered and wandered quite quite a lot over the years. I've lived in four different cities professionally, two different continents. I've had really wonderful opportunities and I guess the privilege of being able to be in different places and work with really amazing people along the way. I grew up in Indiana, sort of near Chicago and moved on to Boston and then Phoenix, Arizona and San Diego before coming to Brisbane. And I guess I've always been in some sort of academic role. So I've been tied to academic institutions all along that way. My training's in psychology, so clinical psychology, but then also went on into public health and 
was interested in, in people and systems. So how do we understand not only psychology and, and mental health, but the context in which people live? So what got you into the system side of thing? Because often as a um, clinical psychologist, you're a therapist. So you are very much thinking about the individual. And I was so excited to hear about another therapist who realized that the individual approach wasn't enough and really started thinking about systems. So how did you find your way to thinking about systems? So in my clinical training, you're right. I think a lot of the focus is on individual therapy and interventions. And I found that for a lot of the people I was working with, I was helping them to cope better with a really horrible situation and felt pretty handicapped by that in terms of not really being able to create that broader change. And there's plenty of data we know in terms of how hard that is to work when people are not in stable, safe environments or situations. But that's a really impossible task. And I guess I felt that need to move more into systems to think about how do we prevent people from getting into these circumstances in the in the first place. And I, in order to have stable long-term change, we have to address the systems that are creating those problems. Great. Thank you. And I think that's a really good segue into burnout because I think burnout can be about managing how you cope and stress management techniques can help with that. But burnout is also about the environment that you're in that's creating the burnout. And some of that prevention can be through your own expectations, but it can also be of the environment itself. I definitely see burnout everywhere around me at the moment, no matter what continent the person is on that I'm speaking to. I think we're in a, a space and within these systems that have really great demands on everybody and not enough space for us all to take care of ourselves properly and to have the time and the energy to fill our cups instead of just depleting them. So I'm pretty hard pressed to come up with very many examples of people who aren't really struggling with this concept in the height of COVID and, and the demands that have been put on everybody by that. A huge question for all of us to grapple with is, is how do we keep up with those demands? And how do we recognize that balance of energy in, energy out? And we've gotten into this space in society where the expectation is that we can just do more and be more efficient, drink more coffee, get less sleep, push through. And we've all accepted that in some ways, implicitly or explicitly in, in what we expect of ourselves and what we expect of other people around us. This sort of speeding up and this pushing through holidays don't exist, time off doesn't exist, weekends don't exist. We're expected to respond to our email or take on um, additional roles, despite the fact that we don't have the energy or the ability to do that. So that comes back to me. It is a systems issue. It is a systemic problem throughout society at the moment in terms of what do we expect of ourselves and those around us being pretty unrealistic? And, and I'm just starting to read Selena Barker's book, Burned Out. She's an author from the UK. 
So obviously I'm really enjoying hearing her British accent and terms like she calls our inner critic, our shitty committee. So I'm really excited to be listening to that. But she really addresses this whole societal addiction to busyness. And in some ways we wear this badge of honor of being stressed. And I agree that it's framed by society, but we are society as well. So how how do we unpack that? Because I, I agree. And from the research on burnout and how particularly it affects women, it comes from both your internal pressure the workplace pressure and societal pressure. So how do we unpack this chicken and egg? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I think it goes both ways for sure in terms of the expectations. And I can think about conversations that you have with anyone, that idea that you walk in and you say, oh, I took the weekend off. There is a sense of, really? I didn't get to do that. This expectation from for one another in terms of that, badge of honor, as you say, and being mindful and aware of that and trying to inject an alternate voice and and perspective on that, I think is really important and yet not necessarily easy to do. There are absolutely the focus here being on women in burnout, that the gendered roles and expectations of putting your needs last that's probably been there for a pretty long time in terms of those expectations. I think we need to be conscious of that and purposefully move in a direction that doesn't accept that as easier said than done. So maybe you could describe a little bit, how do you do that for yourself as a working mom, being a role model to your daughter? How do you manage your own stress and how do you set boundaries and put your needs first? Yeah, look, I think I try to inject that in the systems where I have any control or power. I do work in a heavily dominant female profession. So uh, I have a large number of staff that I'm working with. And so I set those expectations with my staff in terms of putting boundaries around work. And if you're being paid for 20 hours, then do 20 hours of work. I really try to make that explicit in any relationship where I have the power to control that. And that would include when do I send emails or when do I set meetings and How do I reinforce for the people around me that expectation of having your own time and taking care of yourself? And I think when I make that explicit, then it also holds me accountable to that. I'm glad you say that because I would make it explicit and then not hold myself accountable to myself. So I'm glad you're doing that. And how hypocritical, right? That I can stand up there and say, this is so important for you, I'm beyond that. I'm, I'm better than that. I don't need that in the same way that you do. Putting yourself in a different situation to frame it in that way where it's good for you. I can push through and I can manage more. Yeah, that just doesn't sit well with me. And I think by saying it makes it more of a contract for myself. And I'm not going to say that 24-7 I am good at this. It is incredibly hard, particularly where other people are dependent on those outcomes. And so I guess in the current system, I've really tried to be purposeful in where I set my boundaries and where I don't. And so making choices that I'm deciding what's important and meaningful in the work that I'm doing and supports other people in in meeting those outcomes. 
And I think that outcomes focus is really important. And, and even though you're not, not working in a, a corporate environment, that was very much the conversation I had with a um, leadership expert, Rachel Cook, who was saying, we have to get really clear on what are our priorities? What are the most impactful things we can do? What are the outcomes that we're trying to do? so that we can get rid of all the busy work. We can really just focus on the most impactful things towards the outcome we're going to. So I, I agree. I think purpose is so important here. And that's probably the hardest thing for me to do anyway, is to find the space to not just be reactionary, to set that weekly agenda of these are my priority items. These are the things I want to get through. And these are the other things that I'm just kind of churning off my desk because they're there. And yeah, how do I create that agenda for myself rather than open my email inbox and say, oh, someone else has created my agenda. Here are the things that need to get done quickly while I let things that actually matter more to me and are more important in terms of uh, those outcomes slide. So that's really hard, <laughs> something that every day I feel like I'm trying to, to balance in terms of what is it that I really want and need to be doing each day, because the world's moving so fast. I feel like it's really easy to just get caught up in spinning your wheels and doing more and more. So how do you manage your own stress, Kate? I do think that particularly the last couple of years have taught me uh, a bit about that with COVID where some coping strategies have been taken away. And <laughs> I realized, wow, okay, actually, I really need those in place. Yeah. So we just, so we've been very lucky in Brisbane. We've not had a lot of lockdown, but we had an eight day lockdown a couple of weeks ago and my exercise fell off the table and very quickly how that affected me. <clears throat> so that's really important. My partner is a really important piece of that. So he's really good at judging when I need more self-care and supporting me in that process. He's a librarian and will come home with a whole stack of books and say, here you go. You need some time to yourself. Oh, I'm getting goosebumps there. That is just so amazing. I tell you, there is going to be a world of women out there who wish their husbands were more proactive in noticing that they need let alone self-care, that even seems another step. So that, that just does seem amazing. Do you think he came with that or did you train him? Oh, I think he came with that. Yeah, I do feel very lucky and fortunate for sure with that. And I guess too, I think that's been part of our conversation is as a family, what are our goals and how do we arrange our lives in a way that we yeah, are able to live the lives that we want to live and to be in balance is, is an important one for us and to have time for each other, to enjoy spending time with your family. So that is a regular conversation that we have in terms of how are we tracking and what needs to change or what's going and what's not going well. So I think it's that same purposefulness of the work environment comes into the, the home environment. And I think that's so important. We were just watching the Olympics the other week and there was this amazing kayaking race and just literally a foot before the finish line, one team 
totally bailed into the water. They didn't even cross the finish line. They were dunked into the water. And later that week, my husband and I were having a fight about him showing up to do more parenting to help me. I find it particularly hard in the summer to feel like the only one responsible for that. And I was like, but it's like this, those kayakers, I'm like, I just fell out the boat. You're in the boat. You're paddling in one direction. I'm in the back of the boat. I'm steering it. And you're paddling as hard as you freaking can. I get it. But you can't hear me because you're facing forward. You can't see me. The wind's blowing past your ears. And I'm trying to steer. I'm trying to paddle. And I just fell out the boat. That was my analogy there, because when we saw that happen, we had laughed so hard, not at them, but just the situation of it just being so terrible, to be honest. And maybe that's why we laughed. It's that discomfort coming out of, oh my God, I can't believe that just happened to them. But I felt like it was a really helpful analogy to for me to have with him because I appreciate he is friggin paddling hard but we don't really have those conversations about what are our family goals and I think that's really been missing so I think that's really important you have that and again I can imagine you just have so many more skills in that direction because of your clinical training yeah I don't know to me that is just reinforces this idea of burnout, that we've created this as the singular, this isn't an individual's issue to deal with, but actually we all need that collective. If you're doing too much, then where does that load get shared? And I think maybe a lot of this issue comes from our really individualistic expectations of it's one person's job to define that for themselves and to support themselves and to figure out how to do that when actuality, like, we all need to be in this together and supporting one another, whether that's the workplace environment or the home environment, that this is a collective thing and, and absolutely other people's energy fuels us. So we react to that. And yeah, we all need to come back to that social collective to manage what needs to get done and how to take care of each other. And maybe just even as you say that it, highlights to me some of the cultural differences coming from the UK and working and and living in various countries in Europe. I just assume that. And it didn't even occur to me that it could be any other way. And then maybe until this moment, I haven't actually appreciated that that is not necessarily my husband's assumptions because he's grown up here in the US and and is a business owner and has that very much individualistic approach. And he's just doing what he knows best. And I'm assuming he knows my playbook. And yeah, it's different. And it definitely, thank you for helping me come to that realization. But I think that's a lot of what led to my burnout and and and. and maybe is also that others are struggling with is we have these assumptions and we don't speak them out loud and and we're not on the same page. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. Our conversation is so important. Yeah. Are we on the same page? Are we thinking the same things? How do we get through this? And when you name that and you put it on the table, then suddenly we can all pull that apart and figure out what is the best way forward. What does each of us need to make this work? So tell me a little bit more about 
how you're approaching gender and racial equality in the work you do in the academic settings that you're in. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so I guess this has been an area where I've really focused most of my career is around these issues. And they're ones that are getting a lot more traction, I think, but we still have very few answers on how to make those changes. So we've known about a lot of inequity for decades and yet still made really little progress. So I guess I always come back to that sort of mantra that these are huge, massive issues and there's really no shortage of complex, messy stuff that we're facing in the world today. But that question of what can you do where you are with whatever skills or resources you have. And I guess for me as an academic, that where I can create change is in my classroom. So in the curriculum that I teach and the types of information that I'm putting forward to uh, the students in my class. And then my research program really focuses on issues of equity and inclusion quite explicitly. And then I guess in my service roles, but teaching is is probably where I have the most control. So a huge part of my work has been around revising curriculums and, and revising what we're teaching. So we do have a very narrow view in, in psychology in terms of most intro psych books, you go through a long list of esteemed white men who have shaped our understanding, but there's a whole host of other people who've done really important, meaningful work, women and people of color and people from all over the world. And, and so a big part for me is that curriculum needs to share that diversity. And so we've done some really important starting work, I suppose there's a lot more to do just in terms of whose voices are represented in terms of how we understand these issues that are universal of what makes for a good life, what makes people healthy and well and vibrant in their lives. And so there's a lot more room to grow, but I think that's been one space where I've been able to enact change pretty quickly and efficiently in terms of what do I teach and what information do people get exposed to that is more inclusive and more representative. And and how else are you trying to increase representation either in the student body or in the, the faculty body? How is representation central to what you're concerned about? Yeah, so I think... Absolutely. Increasing representation within our student body and the academics who are teaching throughout the systems, really. All of our organizations should represent the the communities that they serve. And a big piece of that for me has been in in mentorship and and supervision and the students that I've worked with to try to increase representation of who are next generation of researchers and and clinicians and people working in in various industries. I think that's a really important pipeline. So I'm involved in a, a range of different committees that are looking specifically at that and trying to spread the word and to get more people involved and committed to understanding that is as problematic. I think it's particularly problematic within the Australian higher education context and something that people are aware of in terms of what that demographic profile looks like and trying to make some shifts with that. And I think, again, the bigger the systems get, the harder and I guess the more difficult 
change feels. And so I keep coming back to what can I do? And I guess I make purposeful choices around who are the students that I'm supervising and mentoring and supporting in their career development to do that. I also hope that through curriculum changes that more students see themselves represented within those professions and so are more inclined to continue to pursue that. Um, I think that's important. If you go into a room and you see no image of yourself, you assume this is not a space that's safe for me or available to me. And so I think the curriculum changes, I hope, have that same flow on effect in terms of changing what our student body looks like. And I guess really trying to advocate for consideration of that in hiring processes and and in application processes. So when we look at postgraduate studies and people doing master's degrees or PhDs, how are we valuing that within our selection processes as well and really trying to promote and support throughout the pipeline greater diversity along the way. And I think a piece of that is tracking and knowing where you're at. I think putting issues of representation on the table. So there's something that we're actively thinking about does make a difference, right? If we don't track it, it's like it doesn't exist. And so that's been a piece for me too, is really trying to push for better understanding of what does our current system look like? And therefore, how do we monitor the progress that we're making in those domains? Yes, I think that's so important because what we measure is what gets attention. So I I agree, it's important. We need to know where we start. But I really thought also, as you mentioned, the larger the system, the harder it is to change. So your framework for that is, what can I do? I I love how you brought it back to that because I think we can get overwhelmed and a little despondent too when we think about these huge systems that we feel like we can't change. So I think that's so important that you take that approach. Let's dig in more if we can, if you've got any more to say about that. Like, how do you view systems change? What what do you think are the keys to changing systems? Yeah, so it's back to the earlier comment you made too about the chicken and the egg, right? So we are the systems we're a part of. And so a big part that I advocate for in my classes with students is a lot of people say, oh, that's your thing. You're into equity and inclusion. That's not really my thing. I do something different. But it is our collective responsibility to identify where we do have power and control and where we can make those incremental changes. And it can be about anything, right? It doesn't have to be about equity that We all need to work to identify how we're contributing to that system positively or negatively and and to recognize that each of us making change creates larger movement. And so really trying to encourage all of my students to, to reflect on where they're positioned within that system and what conscious choices do they want to make about it. Because I do believe that most societal change happens from those small groups of people who are putting that ball in motion. I think we can look at any number. We're at this precipice of so many massive changes in society, whether we want to 
look at everything that's happened in the last couple of years around Black Lives Matter or gender equity or climate change or you name it, that we're seeing these pockets of shifting. And those are because people have actively shown up who've come to the table to say, I want to do what I can where I am in in whatever way that looks like. And I guess that's how I manage my own anxiety. Concern is trying to move into more action, to more movement, as opposed to that despondency. I think that's really important. And I can understand, too, if people are in that phase of burnout, that does feel like something that's hard to do. But I also see that, like you said, what can I do from where I'm at now? It it is action does help. When I think about the coaching thought models that I've um, been introduced to in the last year, sometimes you can't change your thought. Sometimes you can't change your feeling, but you can do something that back to the chicken and egg does change your thoughts, does change your feelings. It's not always that you can lead with the belief that you're going to succeed, but sometimes just doing something then gives you a sense of success. And so then you start to believe you can succeed. So I agree that action is so important. And I think it's really starting to become part of this conversation that I hope as behavior change scientists, we can contribute to because this is not about awareness anymore. There may be some lack of awareness of what are some of the solutions, but there certainly isn't lack of awareness of that this is a problem and that something needs to be done. But many people are still seeing, oh, this is a training problem. This is, we need to let people understand what are their biases. Sure, that's part of the process, but it's action that we need to move into. So yeah, as a behavior change scientist, how do you motivate action? And and what do you think are some of the behavioral strategies we can use to change systems or cultures or even our individual behavior? Yeah, look, uh, several things I guess I want to respond to in that is I think part of why I love being in higher education is that I'm inspired by so many brilliant young people who can think outside the box. And so typically that's how I gain that fuel and momentum is putting that to our next generation who isn't as indoctrinated into our current systems as we are. And they've got brilliant ideas. And to me, we've developed these systems over generations and decades and centuries, really. And so it's really hard to get outside of the current ways of doing that. But for system change, I think that's actually what we need is more creativity, more outside the box, and probably more coming back to that local level for local solutions and working within that context where you are to create a better local neighborhood community or school or faculty or how do we create that vision that we we want to see. And for all the, the wonderful, great things that economies of scale have taught us, they've also taken away some of that. I think it's really hard to change 400 million people all at once. But in a local neighborhood, you have a very different uh, opportunity. And so for me, some of that is scaling back of how can I make this classroom work? How can I affect change within this particular class that I teach, right? That if all of us are coming back and and scaling back into a a smaller sort of ecosystem, a smaller section, then we can be more creative and we can be more innovative and we can uh, 
take chances and to explore that. So there's a creativity element of being open to new ideas and to open to exploring where different paths might lead with that. So brainstorming and really actively taking the time to think bigger picture again, I think is really important. It's like big, small, big, small, big, small. Uh, that constant shifting of the lens, right? Those pictures where you can go back and forth between the, the figure and the foreground. What are some of the unique issues in Australia? So there are a lot of unique things. And Australia is one of the most diverse um, societies in the world in terms of the large number of different groups who are living here, large numbers of migrant populations, recently migrated populations, certainly the vast diversity of our First Nations people that have been here for as long as any um, culture in the world. And so it's a really unique place to be and has been a wonderful place to, to get to call home for the last several years. So as someone who works pretty exclusively across different cultures. I've learned so much about different parts of the world and different ways of viewing issues. And it probably comes back to your earlier comment of you and your partner being from different places and maybe some of the assumptions that we make in working with different people or different cultural backgrounds that we can't really assume that we're on the same page and the opportunity to put things on the table to try to unpack that and understand one another in different ways. And I think you're right in terms of thinking about that you worked with Somali women in San Diego. So you experienced through your work with them that sense of where cultures clash and it does make you realize there are different thoughts even within a society or there are different ways of seeing the world even if we're in the same place together so maybe one of the questions I have that I think is important I was recently listening to Janice Gassam's book which is the the pink elephant and she very much is talking about how we can become anti-racist in our organizations and one of the things she talks about is white people as allies is very white centered. She talks a lot about the white savior. So again, when I think about the work you've done with many um, different communities, marginalized communities, how do you approach your work? It's not about you. And it's not about you as the white person coming in being that savior. And how do you make it so that it's community centered, not white centered? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think is a huge question that a lot of people have. And one that I've struggled in my own work. I think as human beings, we are self-centered in that way that we, of course, see the world from the lens that we come from and naturally are acting in the world in a way that protects and preserves ourselves and our, our beliefs about ourselves and, and, and who we are. I think that's a human characteristic that's there. And I guess the approach in my work is to meet people, to use participatory um, approaches where there's a priority on equal voices, on shared power in decision-making, where I'm not coming in as a researcher who has ideas about what needs to be done, 
but rather to ask the question of what communities want to see done. That I'm there to act as a bridge, to uh, leverage some of the resources that universities offer and the infrastructure and supports that are there to meet the, the goals of what communities want to see happen. And so that takes uh, a backseat in terms of what is it that's my agenda and what is it that I want to accomplish, but rather what is the impact that this can have for people who are grappling with the issues of their everyday lives. And again, trying to come back to what's happening within systems and how do we make those systems more equitable? So how can I be a bridge between the university sector and community that is more authentic, that has stronger connections and pipelines, whether that's people from diverse communities wanting to come into the university or the resources and knowledge and information from universities going directly into communities and providing programs and supports and people hours to engage in those community identified issues. I was just on a board meeting with an organization called um... IMAS, which is an international mothers in academia organization. And we were very much talking about that, how in academia, we have privilege in terms of the education and the opportunities we have. Although a lot of the discussion was actually about that doesn't necessarily result in income. There are many mums working in academia who are having to apply for scholarships to these organizations. For example, Academic Mamas does scholarships because women, especially mums during COVID, just could no longer make ends meet. So it's an interesting position. But I think what I want to focus on is that privilege that I think you you talked about earlier in terms of that's what we're being asked to do by diversity, equity and inclusion and anti-racist initiatives is take that privilege and do something with it. And it doesn't matter if it's messy and we make our mistakes, but really do something with that privilege to empower others. So I think how you describe making that connection between the university and the community that is that's you taking this position of opportunity that you are in and then sharing it more widely so I think more and more we need examples like that because there's these calls for us to do that as white people but we don't necessarily know exactly how to yet unfortunately And I think, too, the other piece of that is to then raise that as a critical issue within my own systems, to recognize that, to have those difficult conversations, to recognize that as a white woman, I still am closer on par to the experience of a white male. And to recognize that privilege and to call that out as gender equity is still not equitable. And to come back to my systems to say, look, these are the barriers to authentically engaging with community. There are so many ways that we expect marginalized communities to show up as an advisor or to be on a steering committee, but we don't pay them. (laughs) We don't, even though you get your salary paid to come to this place every day, 
we ask other communities to come and to give their voice without equal compensation. So where do I see that in terms of my own system and the change that we have to make within that to make them more equitable? So to critique the systems I'm a part of, whether that's research funding and dollars and where does that get spent, whether that's the ways in which we review ethics processes that systematically exclude people of color and people from diverse backgrounds from being part of research and yet have these mega industries that are in place that aren't equally benefiting all people. And so there's a piece of sharing resources, but also trying to question those systems where I do get considerable benefit to recognize and to own that and to question that and to try to find ways to change the balance within those systems. And I think that's so important. There's so many women of color and people of color who are being expected to advise and and be on committees and, and they need reward for that work in any shape or form that is meaningful to them. If that type of work is something they're enjoying doing, that's fine, but you've got to take something else off of their plate. But I think also they're not necessarily assuming that's what they want to work on. And I believe that's what you said at the beginning is you don't want your email inbox to be driving you. You want to have purpose. And hearing that from Dr. Gassam saying, I don't want to be spending my time teaching white people how to behave. I have my own priorities and my own vision and my own research and my own work that I want to do. So again, I think it comes back to finding those purposes and allowing everyone to find purpose and and see what's most impactful to them. Owning our, our part in doing our own work. I think back to what you said, what can I do? Not what can I ask someone else to do for me? Absolutely. What's my role? What am I going to contribute positively to the the world? I was trying to create a behavior change guide for each of my podcast episodes. So what is one behavior change you would recommend for moms or companies to start today or students or universities? (laughs) Yeah, great question. I guess there's a few things that come to mind in terms of there is a piece of being purposeful and planning. So finding whatever that looks like in terms of taking a step back in what is it that's being thrown at you and how are you responding to that? What choice do you have in that? And sometimes there isn't a choice, but how can I use this situation to meet that ultimate goal and an outcome that I'm looking for? So to me, that's been really critical is having some place or time where I can take that step back to think whether that's start of the year and New Year's resolutions most people have, but much more frequently than that. Here's what I want to accomplish this week, or this is what I want to do. This is my priority. And to make sure that list includes stuff that's actually about the things that matter to me. So it's about having time with my family. It's about filling my cup, something each day that can center and ground me. And, and help me to be in a position where I can live the life that I want to live. I do think we need to, to get better at setting boundaries or to question and to think about what we're doing and why we're doing it. At least in my life, I, I'm getting all sorts of questions around certain outcomes or things that I'm doing 
<laughs> I take a step back and I say, wait, now why am I doing this? What is the opportunity? Who benefits from this? And is that something that I agree with? And again, a piece of that comes back to the great privilege that I sit with in terms of being able to have a voice and to push back. And so that's been, I guess, one of my biggest tools in, and resources in this pursuit of equity is to try to actively use the voice um, and position that I've been lucky to find myself in. So think about that. Who are you? What are your skills? What do you bring to the table? And what do you want to do with that? Thank you so much for listening today. Please take a moment to watch my TEDx talk. The YouTube link is in the show description, and my talk is called How to Stop Burnout Before It Starts. If your organization needs to kickstart its burnout efforts with an inspiring keynote, I can talk about my story, the science behind burnout, and the science and practice of preventing burnout. From my own experience, my podcast guests, and my public health behavior change multi-level approach. Are you worried about your employees burning out? Are you losing some of your best talent, but you're too exhausted and burned out yourself to solve this problem? Are you concerned that any efforts you will make will be wasted? I understand. Would you like a clear roadmap for solving burnout and DEI challenges in one that you can adjust to your company culture? I can provide a strategic plan of evidence-based solutions matched to your needs and a blueprint process to implement them in your workplace to improve psychological safety, reduce burnout and turnover, and ensure that your company remains a fair and value-driven company for thriving employees, where you are also no longer burned out and instead can effectively support others. The best kickstart is through a keynote. So just contact me through my website at drjacquelinecur.com. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious mental health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Control, you're a fighter. Push the limits and see it. You're already there. Told you we going higher. Ain't no stopping us. We're going in for the win. And we're gonna celebrate. Then we're gonna do it all over again. And we're gonna rock this place. Cause this is our day. Feel the pain.